The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Father, thank you for your love demonstrated to us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ, you came and died in our place. We We are the ones that offended you. We are the ones that postured ourselves as enemies, those that reject and rebelled against your good and holy law. And and then you in your righteousness and holiness sent your son to die in our place to ransom and rescue us back to this intimate relationship where we can call you Father, Father, that you, Father, are, are preparing us as a bride for the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are making us radiant for this glorious day where we'll be wrapped up in your love and brought into your presence and have the privilege to see you face to face. We will know as we are fully known. And this moment gives us, breathes in us, breathes into us this living hope that sustains us in these moments. That, uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for being this glorious ambassador of grace and love, for showing us a way back to the Father, being the way back to the Father. Thank you that you willingly took our punishment and pain and suffering and sorrow so that we could experience yet again what it's like to be in the Father's presence and to experience all the glorious attributes, life itself, love poured out upon us, purifying and cleansing us, so that we might be these ambassadors of these glorious attributes that are who you are. Lord, help us, forgive us when we want you to be something that you're not or treat you in manners that are um, less than who you are. Help us to embrace the glorious revelation of who you are, self-described in your word, and thank you for your spirit that, that unpacks this lofty, wonderful, glorious God that you are to us and writes it on our hearts so that we might worship you with our lives, Lord. Let that be true of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I have a few questions that's going to kind of start your heart stirring. Uh, we are in the Gospel of John. We have now started into the sixth chapter. Uh, so you're welcome to turn there um, and get ready for this passage that uh, I think it's dangerous to be familiar with, well, or to believe that we're familiar with the Scripture uh, and not realize that it is limitless in its potential to unpack this glorious God that's beyond our comprehension. And, uh, and because sometimes we get casual or as, uh, um, as uh, Psalms 119 says, we neglect the scripture. We might be reading it and neglecting it because we're not giving it its, its due awe and reverence. I mean, this is God's love letter meant to, 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 to show us himself and, uh, and to unpack. And this is what Jesus came. Jesus says, I- I've come to show you the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen him. Like there's this, this glorious 
unity in the Father that he has invited us into, that we get to be a part of this, this, this unifying force of his Spirit. And don't be deceived that the Spirit of God is not about unifying us with the Trinity itself, like bringing us in, inviting us into this intimate, powerful context that allows our lives to reflect this glory of who he is. And that's what we're meant to be. We're meant to represent. The word represent literally means to represent. We get to be reflections of him. We get to shine. We get to be the light of the world because the light of the world has planted himself through his spirit in us. And so we get to shine for his glory. That's a privilege. That's, a, that's an awesome opportunity. And here's the good news. He's doing it. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. You know, he never asks us to do something that he doesn't empower us to do. And, and the, the thing that we must do is we must believe him for these glorious things that he is faithful and able to do. So first thing I want you to do is I want you to take out a three by five card that's in the seat backs in front of you and grab the pen because uh, we're going to do a, a unique work this morning. Um, are, are you a disciple? The, the, word, the word really means learner or student. Right, it means one that is that is uh, that sits under the feet of the rabbi, uh, the, the 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 one the the rabbi, and and uh, and drinks in his yoke, his teachings, his truth, like allows that because Jesus says in John fifteen three that that you are already clean because of the word. You know, the word of God has the ability to cleanse us, to purify, sanctify, heal us, refine us. You know, finish the work that uh, that Jesus has started in us. Um, so we're going to look at a, a very unique passage this morning. And in this passage, um, how many of you have ever read the feeding of the five thousand? Okay, so it's it's one that we usually get as children in Sunday school. Uh, John uh, chooses very, very by the Holy Spirit chooses very. Uh, very succinctly, seven signs. He doesn't even call them miracles. He calls them signs. And we're going to refer to them as signposts today because that's their intended purpose. They're meant to point to him, right? They're not meant to be an ends or a means for us to, to embrace him because or for. They're meant to identify or, or validate him as who he came to be, who he is. And so... Um, in those seven signs, uh, this is one of those seven signs where Jesus comes into a setting where people are in a, um, an isolated scenario, in a deserted place, um, and they, uh, Jesus says this about them, they are like sheep without a shepherd. That's a big statement that Jesus is making there. We'll unpack that in a minute. Um, but like all of the text, all the scriptures, especially the gospels, um, we have the privilege of having, we have multiple witnesses. And I don't say four because in most cases, it's two or three. In some cases, John's unique. Sometimes it's just one. Um, but wherever we have multiple witnesses to an account or an event in Jesus' ministry, we benefit tremendously from, from what the, the uh, scholars call harmonizing them. Okay, bring in, it's like going into a courtroom. Um, you, would, uh, you would benefit tremendously from having multiple witnesses that attest to the same scenario and give you different nuances or, or, or details from that scenario. And we're, we're blessed to have that 
uh, in this case. And what's unique about this particular event in Jesus' life and ministry is it's the only one that all four Gospels account to. So I didn't know if you knew that. And I didn't know if you knew this as well, that the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, obviously, numerically, are different, right? So these are, these are different events. Uh, but in this case, there's, there's four gospel accounts that attest to this. So what I'm going to endeavor to do this morning is I'm going to take you through all four gospel accounts. Now, what I've done all week is I've studied the, different, the four different gospels and the account of this particular miraculous meal, and, um, and, and when you bring them all together, it lights the story up. It fills in, because John specifically kind of leaves you hanging on some, some details. And where Matthew, Mark, and Luke will pick up those details, and then we get a fuller picture of really some of the, 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 the things that are happening in this particular moment. Does that make sense? So if you've got your 3 by 5 card and your pen, I'm going to give you the different, like, because we're in John, that's going to be our focus, that's going to be our, our, our launch pad, but I'm going to be referencing some of these passages. I, I don't recommend that you necessarily go, you know, try to thumb through these as we go through them, but I want you to have them because I want you to be able to reference them later or know where they're at uh, if you want to take a peek. Okay, so in Mark, it's chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. So you want to write down Mark uh, chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. And this is all, we're looking at John today. John is John chapter 6, 1 to 15. And that's our base uh, for our attempt to, to dive into this particular event. In Luke, it's found in chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. Luke chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. And then in, finally in Matthew it's in chapter 14, Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21. Okay, so what I'm going to do for you now is I'm going to read the account from John's Gospel's perspective. Let's, let's understand, I think it's so important that we highlight this, because often we talk about Paul said this, and Luke said this, and John said this, and Peter said this. The truth is, this is all the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's give credit where credit is due. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, and that's why it's a, unif- it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a perfectly unified message. And so, um, but let me, let me first read through the Gospel of John. God bless you. And let's, uh, let's listen to what these first 15 verses have. And be a student of the Word. Start asking questions to the text. Um, I'll give you an example. The very first thing we read here is after this. Uh, a, a good disciple would say, after what? Right, You would start to go back in the text and you would start to ask the questions, after what? Because that has incredible relevance into the condition of the disciples in Jesus' hearts and mindsets going into this particular event. I'm going to read 1 to 15 and then we'll jump in. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing On the sick, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, I want you to imagine this, large crowd coming towards him. This is a very remote place. Jesus turns to Philip and says, Where are we to buy bread? 
so that these people may eat. Can you imagine if Jesus asked you that question? Verse 6, And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. That just gives you, and we'll talk about the numbers there, but that gives you a little bit of a sense of how many people are out in front of their eyes at this point. Verse 8, one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for, for, for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. It almost sounds like Jesus went out and fed 5,000 people, that he did that, right? Also, he says, so also the fish, as much as they wanted, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves, the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then, Jesus, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Okay, so let's, let's think back over the previous five chapters. Jesus has declared, or John the Baptist, on G, as, as a witness to Jesus, has declared that this is the light of the world. Speaking of Jesus of Nazareth, that he, he, this guy, born among us, is the very one that all the prophets declared, over 300 prophecies, profound in nature, are being, this is him, the light of the world. And then in chapter 4, we see him like intentionally pursue a woman of ill repute that has been disenfranchised by her community, that has chosen to be alienated from her context because of her perceived reputation or just the... the the, the, the prejudice or the persecution she was experiencing or her lifestyle. And Jesus seeks her out and sits at a well to talk about the fact that he is the living water. And now he is going to feed arguably over 12,000 people, right? 5,000 men plus women and children. Um, many scholars believe that it's at least that number. And he's going to feed them with a, with a child's lunch. Um, in order for them later to understand that he is the bread of life. And it's interesting that he does this all on the precipice of the feast of Passover or of unleavened bread. All right, so as I mentioned, all four Gospels have an account of this. And so let's pick up the text in John, and then I'm going to bring in the other Gospels as we go through, and I think we're going to discover some pretty neat things. All right, so it says after this. So after this is what? After what? And so I went back and looked at what, what after this was. So the, the thing about John is we start with John, and John is basically laying out what we call the, the prologue in the first, first 18 verses of chapter 1. And basically he's going to use that as the premise or the foundation for the rest of the entire book. The Holy Spirit just, just 
authors these books in such perfection, such intricacies. And, uh, and so then what happens is, is that John moves in like days. He said the next day, when John the Baptist was talking about Jesus, the next day, then two days in Samaria. So it moves in this very succinct or uh, very, um, very, very concise time frame. And then all of a sudden, like last week, he jumps in, 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 in dating or in time frames. And here, there's a significant amount of time that goes by. And I was just interested. What has transpired in the other Gospels between the time, chapter, end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6? Um, and this is what's transpired. Jesus is given the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Um, Jesus has healed the Roman centurion's servant. Uh, Jesus has raised a widow's son to life. Uh, Jesus has calmed the storm. Jesus has sent demons into a, a, a herd of pigs uh, from a guy that we refer to as Legion. Um, Jesus has healed a, a woman that had an issue of bleeding, and then he's restored Jairus' daughter to life. So there's, a, there's some, some cool stuff's going on, right? Like this, there's some things that have happened since we uh, paused at the end of chapter 5, moved to chapter 6. But then it's interesting because both... All the synoptic gospels, when I say that, I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, they, re- they talk about these two events happening right on the precipice of this, of this account. And what, is, what happened was Jesus sent out the 12 disciples, and secondly, Jesus finds out that his witness, his forerunner, has been beheaded. Okay, so we have to understand, and it's, I think it's so important that we understand that there's some emotional content here on behalf of the disciples. And I mean, they're coming back. They're pretty excited. You know, like demons ran in, in, in your name. Like, I mean, he, they did, because they were given authority, they did these miraculous works in order to point to Jesus' message and ministry. And, uh, and so they come back and they're giving a report to Jesus. At the same time, Jesus is hearing that John has died. And not just died in any fashion, he's lost his head because of Herod's, uh, well, really Herod's brother's wife's daughter. And so um, this, is, uh, this is sad. Now, let's also remember that at least Andrew and John were both disciples of John the Baptist before they were disciples of Jesus. So they had an intimate relationship with John. This would have been a very sad moment for them. On the other side, we find out in the text, as we read the other Gospels, that they were exhausted and they were going at such a, such a, um, such a busy rate that they hadn't even had time to eat. Okay? So if you don't eat, how's that go? Right? If your kids don't eat, how's that? Like, if, if you're faced with the, the loss of a loved one, how does that go? And so all of this is going on on the, on the eve of this moment. And, and then Jesus starts to take these boys away for some time of rest, right? Now, one of the things that I, I and, and we're going to look at the other text here, and, and I'll go ahead and pick that up. This is what it says. Jesus went away. That's all we hear in John. Jesus went away. He crossed over, we find out from Matthew and Mark, in a boat, right? Uh, and we're talking about the, the Sea of Galilee. So he's left Jerusalem, and he's gone up to uh, the Sea of Galilee, and he's crossing over. And this is, this is a journey uh, for rest and reflection. He's kind of trying to, to give the boys a break, right? Now, he's the good shepherd, the Holy Spirit in us. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit will also lead us to moments where he knows we need 
downtime and we need rest. I think, you know, how many decisions did, did, did the 12 disciples get to make once they started following Jesus with their lives? None, right? They, where Jesus went, they went, right? I mean, it's, it's really ideal uh, for us to follow the Spirit in like manner. Like, just, just say, well, if you're Lord, then I'm going where you're leading because I believe your way is better than my way. I believe that you're, you, you know me better than I know me, and you know what's out in front of me, so I can trust you. And here's the good news. You love me, and you're perfect in that loving expression. And, and you use all of those glorious attributes, not only for your fame so that others might come to know you, but that you, all, you also do that to care for me as a good shepherd. And so, guys, I, I want to ask you, do, do you think that the Spirit sometimes leads us to restful moments? I do. I, I believe that. But I think sometimes we celebrate our busyness or we spend too much time on Facebook and we think, man, I got to get out there to do some stuff because I'm missing out on life. And we don't really keep in step with the Spirit and let Him lead us in this rhythm that includes rest now, look, 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 one of the things we find in this is that there is demands that hit, needs that arises on the other side of this boat trip, this short boat trip, eight and a half miles across the sea, and, uh, and they begin to uh, minister yet again. But I think it's important that we understand their disposition, their experiences going into this. So it says they got to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. In Luke chapter 9, it tells us, uh, verse 10, it tells us that they were in Bethsaida. Now, interesting there because six, at least half of the disciples we know are from Bethsaida. Okay, this is an extremely remote town, very, very, very obscure. Um, it's, uh, it's an agricultural community. It's a fishing community, but it's not a Jewish territory. It's just outside of, of the, the Jewish territory. And it goes on to say, and he said to them, Come away by yourself, he being Jesus, to a desolate place and rest for a while. Now, guys, is there a difference between isolation and solitude? What's the difference? God, right? Isolation is a place where the enemy can wreak havoc in our stinking thinking, in our self-talk, right? But solitude has a totally different agenda. Solitude has, a, has an aim to sit at the, at the Lord's feet and to be refreshed by his word and by his, by his love, to spend significant time in prayer. Guys, do you think that, there's, um, do you think that we, we need more of him in our routines, our schedule? Do you think that we need to spend more time with him and maybe that's where our rest is actually found, that he is our rest? So Sheba and I just got back from, we call them retreats now. Um, because the aim is different, right? I, I, I see people come back from vacation and they're ready for another vacation because they're exhausted from the pursuit of entertainment, believing that that somehow is going to find rest in that. And, and here's the thing. The only one that brings rest is the author, is rest himself, is Jesus. And so if we leave Jesus out of our times of vacationing, or I mean, we're going to be worn out because there is no rest outside of him. And so I, I hope, you know, one of the things that I've found, and this is by trial and error, a lot of that too, is that, man, you, you don't take vacation from him and find life, find joy, find rest, right? It, it should be an occasion, a greater occasion to spend more time with him, right? And what I've found is that's refreshing, 
Does that make sense? It's extremely refreshing when we, when, we, when, we, when we pause in order to rest in him, to find this. The, because listen, what, why is Jesus leading them to this mode? Because they're tired and he knows it. They've been poured out. Though their excitement is overshadowing some of that fatigue, Jesus knows their need as their good shepherd. On the other side of that, there's grief here. And Jesus is leading them to times of solitude. I think that's a great example for us. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, very early in the morning, while, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place where he prayed. I mean, if Jesus needed to do that, how desperate are we? to be in the Father's presence and to think what he's done in order... Because what is the Father's presence? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I, this is where life is. This is where it... Like when we wander from him, we're wandering from life, from hope, from joy, from peace. Like there, there's no other source. I'm the wellspring of these things, he says. And he leads them that way as the good shepherd. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. It says, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves, Mark 6, 31 and 32 says. The text continues in verse 2 in John, and it says, and a large crowd was following him. Uh, Mark six thirty three says, on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So um, do you ever feel like the demands of life just seem to be pressing all the time, kind of, you know, they're there before you even get there? You think Jesus understands that? He does. He was constantly put in that position. It says, because they saw the signs. Now, this is interesting. The large crowd that was following him is because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So here's the question I was going to pose earlier. Um, Are you using God or is God using you? Are you using God or is God using you? Jesus said, I have food you know nothing about to do the will of my heavenly father. His point was, as I serve the Lord according to his will, his word and his way, what happens is I I am refreshed as I go. Um, Here we find out the motive behind the fellowship of these large crowds. They are following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now look, is, is it wrong to seek the healer for healing? The giver for gifts? Is it wrong to do that? Absolutely not. But when that's all we want from him, Jesus wants nothing to do with it. This is not the first time we've seen this in John. This seems to be a theme. That, that he's able to see our hearts, John 2.23 says. And when he saw their hearts, he backed off. It seems like when, when they want to make him king, huh, what's wrong with that? He sees their hearts. And what does he do? Peace out. Right? Like, and here's one of the things, because I don't want to miss this if we don't get to that verse 15. I don't want to miss this. Guys, please hear this. Um, I think there's, there's opportunity for us to not, at moments, not to feel the rich sense of Jesus' presence. And I think the cause in that, at times, can be that our motives are poor that our intentions 
are, are off. In James, it says, listen, you ask, but you don't receive. Why? Because you desire to, with the things you ask for, you desire them to be self-serving. And, and when it comes to wisdom, he says, ask. And he gives generously without finding fault, James 1.5. But he says, the problem is if you ask and don't believe, you're like a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. You, you will not receive anything. Guys, look, Jesus, Jesus wants to and has come. He, he has raced from heaven to intimately embrace us in our, in our fallen, broken state and to ransom us back to an intimate relationship with him. But when we want to make him when we want to make him into a miracle worker, that's not who he is. And he won't settle for anything other than I am who I am. I mean, I'm sure that, that that's exactly what Tom was helping us to understand last week as Jesus basically said, "Yeah, I'm him. I'm I'm the son of God. I'm the great I am." Like that I I'm Emmanuel, God with us. And, and here, I, I talked about this before, but it, it's, like, it's like, have you ever had someone use you for your position, your power, or your, your influence, or your money, your resources? Have you ever been used in that way? It just, it just feels so shallow and empty. You've heard celebrities say, I, I, I don't really know who my friends are. But see, Jesus had this awesome advantage that he could look right into our, their hearts. And he said that as he pointed to their hearts, he could, he could say to their intentions, that's not who I am. And I need you to know who I am because it's believing on that identity that brings salvation. That you would acknowledge me as the son of God. And what, so what is the point of these signs? These signs are meant to be signposts that point to Jesus, that point to who he is so that we can believe him and acknowledge him and accept him and, 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 and receive him for who he is, not who we want him to be. Jesus didn't want them to want him for what, they, what he could give them. Later on in this passage in chapter 6, he tells them after they chase him around the lake again, he tells them, look, you're, you know why you're here? I mean, he just tells them. You're here because you just want your bellies filled again. That's why you're here. You want to make me king. You want me to be your king. You know why? Because then, then you're hoping that you don't have to work and I'll just give you bread all the time and fish and you can just sit around. Right? And is that, is that the abundant life that Jesus has purchased us to? Well, I think we get to see what the disciples experience as in contrast to this. So in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, it goes on to say, and when he, when he went ashore, he being Jesus, he saw the, a great crowd um, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So here's, here's the grace of God. Here, here's the grace of God. He knows that we're in process, right? Even though he sees all of these poor intentions, he continues to do what? To love them, to heal them. But ultimately what he continues to do is teach them, to instruct them so that they have a better understanding of who he is. And what motivated that posture was the fact that he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Now, what is the condition of a sheep without a shepherd? Lost, right? That's the first thing we think of. Wandering, Wandering okay. Usually they're, they, they have no sustenance, right? Like that's, that's the shepherd's role is to lead them to green pastures and still waters. 
But also, they are incredibly vulnerable to the enemy, right? And so this is how, this is how he sees them, and then he's moved with compassion in order to do what? What does he do? He teaches them and heals them. Like, that's the antidote for our lost condition is the word of God, is the word of Christ, is that he teaches. And what is the aim of his word? To reveal himself to them. This is what he wants us to know. Most passionately is he wants us to know him. And that the aim of our life would not be what he can give me, but the fact that I get to know and be in this intimate loving, protective, provided for relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's an awesome thing. Well, Matthew 14, 14 goes on to say, and he had compassion on them and healed the sick. Luke 9, 11 said, he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cursed those, oh, excuse me, <laughs> cured those who had need of healing. So the passage continues. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. Now, this is interesting, guys. Whenever man talks to God, we call that prayer, right? So this this isn't an exception here. This is is a man talking to God. And so um, there there should be some things when we talk to God that should be um, understood, right? That he is who he is, that he's omniscient, he's almighty, he's powerful, he he knows the the beginning from the end, He, he knows it all, right? Um, it's interesting, this is what they say to him. So when, the, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. My question is, did he not know that? Is this, follow, when they go on to say, and the day is now over. So basically they're saying, hey, this is kind of a, a desolate place and it's getting late. Um, and the, the next word that is stated here is interesting. It says, Send the crowds. That sounds like a demand. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now, the question I had as I read this is that how often does this sound like our prayers where we're telling God things that we know God knows? Like, and, it, and it's almost an insult or it's, it's a declaration of what we believe about him. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, don't you think that they should have known that he knew that? I mean, it's, it's a statement that you don't, you, you, you're not really sensitive to these details, so we've got to let you know that this is a desolate place. We're from here, Jesus. And, and, uh, and, and you know, like, these guys are probably hungry. Um, send them away. I mean, does our prayer life sometimes include, let me tell you what's going on here, Jesus, because I'm not sure you know me. Let me tell you the the details of my circumstance because I'm not sure that you're familiar with that. Wouldn't it be more honoring to the Lord if we would make the valid assumption that he knows? Right? And then how often does our prayers uh, sound similar to a, a command or demand rather than a plea or a request of the one that knows better and has this posture of, but if you have a better idea, I'm all in rather than, this is how I want this to go down, Jesus. And if it doesn't go down this way, then you're not faithful. You're not, you're not who you are. You're not doing what I'm asking you to do. And I love what Jesus says in response to this. I love this. 
Now, I want you to imagine, just for a moment, before I, before I read this, because he said now, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a desolate place, that, you know, it's getting late, send the crowds away to go to the villages, buy food for themselves. And Jesus says to them, what, what, listen to what he says. Now, I want you to imagine you're one of these guys, right? You're standing on this hill. You're looking now over this multitude that is probably 12,000 people that, that, are, that are hungry. Um, and Jesus looks at you and says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Just, just imagine for a moment. Okay, I, I agree. It's a desolate place. It's late. They're hungry. Feed them. How do you feel? I mean, like, say that's you. Right? I, most of us turn to and have the same response that Moses had at the burning bush. Um, yeah, I, 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 I stutter. and Why? Because we start taking personal inventory of what we can do rather than what he can do. Right? We, we, I mean, he said, you feed them. Now, what's interesting in the text is, who ends up feeding them? They do. But at this point, you've got to imagine, they're all looking at each other going, what? Feed them? Like, that, 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 that's, that's, that's impossible, right? Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. And maybe this is you right now. Where is Jesus saying to you, you feed them. Where is he asking you to do something? Maybe, here, I'll use a scenario. I want you to imagine Stephen, right? Stephen stood before his opposers, right? And they had a clear objective that they were going to stone him to death. And Jesus, Peter sets his gaze on heaven and because of that experience, he sees and he is, there's grace in that moment. He dies even professing the very statement that Jesus made on the cross. Father, do not hold this sin against them. Right? But I want you to imagine there's, there's someone with a gun in your face and, and, and they have ill intent. And, um, and then you're reminded by the Holy Spirit, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You feed them. You see what I'm saying? So often, we're faced with circumstances where God is, is calling us to a miraculous moment in our life, and we start taking personal inventory of what we can't do or what we don't have. Guys, what don't we have? Like, see, we've got to think on a whole different level when we understand what we've been given by the Holy Spirit. You know, we have the mind of Christ. I mean, what, what's been deposited in us, we are, do you think that we are, do you think that we are, um, resourced for miraculous things by a, a miraculous God that, that has a cattle on a thousand hills? That Luke one thirty seven says, nothing, this is heaven's declaration through angelic presence, says to Mary, says, nothing is impossible with God. But you know what we do in those moments where God says, you feed them, we go, I got no money, I got no, I, we start listing what we can't do and what we don't have rather than who we have and what he can do. That, that's the mindset that we're called to, is that God is going to and call... Listen, this whole saying that, you know, you know, God doesn't give us more than we can handle, that's a lie. God always gives us more than we can handle. That's called a test, right? And those tests are meant for our maturity. 
that we might be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. This is why God tests us. This is the heart of God. He's giving himself to us. It's actually a gift when he tests us. And in those moments, what he's calling out of us is a greater faith that he is able. I'm not asking you to jump out there and do things that you want to do. I'm saying when God calls you to something, let's not start taking personal inventory. Because here's what it will always require. Every time. And oftentimes what keeps us from that miraculous moment, or in this case, this miraculous meal, is because I don't have enough. I'm, I'm not enough. The enemy has lied to you. You're in Christ. Um, I think that's interesting. It goes on in verses 3 through 6. Jesus went up on the mountain. And there he sat down with his disciples. Now the, the crowd's coming. He sits down with his disciples. That's a rabbi's posture for teaching. And it says, now the Passover, the feast of, of the Jews was at hand. I'm not going to spend time on that. There's vague understanding of that. And what I believe it is, is he's, he's pointing to himself as being the Passover lamb, the unleavened bread, the bread of life. Um, verse 5 says, lifting up his eyes, Jesus' eyes said, then And seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, now, guys, don't miss this, please. This is rich. Um, So I want you to imagine you're sitting on that hillside with Jesus. There's this massive crowd. Now they're starting to come, right? And uh, they've already had this conversation a little bit about food and who's going to feed them. And um, then Jesus, and it says here, crystal clear that he's, 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 he's testing him. Jesus says to Peter, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So there's several questions going on between him and his disciples. And here he asked Philip a very specific question. What did he ask him? Help me. So he asked, he asked where, right? We're going to get back to this. Because this is, this is completely foreign to the way that, that Philip answers this question, Right? He asked, where, where are we to get or buy, right, this food, um, buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do, he being Jesus. Guys, please, please hear this. The Christian life is filled with a litany of tests. You are going to be tested through health, through relationships, through circumstances, there are going to be tests. And God is the author of this test. He's not trying to be vague about that. But his agenda is crystal clear. He is seeking to mature you through these tests. He is seeking to, to pour himself into you through this test. But what is the obvious response that we must have is that he wants our faith to be expanded and grown challenged and, 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 uh, and practiced in these moments. And so that's what God's up to. Don't question. I'm just, I'm just because this, people get hung up here. Is that, listen, God is good and he loves you and he's got glorious plans for you. But listen, he's, not, he's way more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. And he's way more concerned about your character than your comfort. And, and because he is not willing for you that you would be immature, he is going to test you for the purpose of sanctification, holiness, of maturity. This is what he's doing. 
And, and James calls us to an attitude in response to that. He says, counter pure joy, my brothers, when you face, not if, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your, you know this, right? He's reminding them, you know this, that the testing of your faith, your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work that you are mature, complete, not lacking anything. Now, look, I, I am not doing this to point out anybody or to make anybody be, be, be uncomfortable, but... Matt, Matt's about to head out with his beautiful wife to Ireland. Like, and they're going, they're, they're going to do the full, and I, I don't mean to embarrass, I just want to point this point out, is that they're, they're going to do the full Ironman, right, in Ireland with, what, 50 people from this area, right? That, that, that's fantastic. I'm in, I, I just have great respect for this. But I want, to just, I want to ask the question, what role does perseverance have and endurance have in finishing something like that? Is it everything? <laughs> so here's, here, I mean, you've been training. I mean, did it require perseverance through these moments of training, right? And has perseverance had any sort of benefit? <laughs> right? So listen, guys, the, the purpose of testing is that God would develop perseverance. Romans 5 says character and hope, a hope that never disappoints us. Listen, left to our own means, you know what we default to? Comfort, laziness. We do. We, we, to, to self-soothing, self-satisfaction, we, 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 we move to a destructive path very quickly. And God brings these moments in order to, to refine us. And he's testing. It's very clear. It tells us what, what his agenda is there. He is testing him. Now listen, I found this part really sweet. The Lord sometimes tests us by putting us in difficult situations with no easy answers. At these times, we feel overwhelmed or frustrated, as, as Philip obviously did. However, frustration is not God's intended result. The wise disciple always keeps the door open for God to work. When the first and second look at a problem yields no solution, do not trust God to... Do you trust God to work or assume it's hopeless? Philip fell short because he allowed his thinking to be limited by his own limited resources instead of seeking God's limitless resources. Guys, one of the keys to, to, to passing the test, because I don't know about you, but I've been in some tests for a very long time, and I get to the point, I'm like, okay, I, I want to learn the lesson. I'm tired of this, this test. Yeah right? And one of the keys to getting over the test is, one, believing that God is good in this and that he's imparting himself to me. And two, in this, understanding that the resources of heaven is at the disposal of this test being successful. Does that make sense? Like God doesn't ask us to do anything that he's not fully committed to helping us go through. And so his grace abounds, as as Rob talked about in these moments, abounds in this time. Um, verse 7, Philip answered him. How would you have answered Jesus there? Right? Where, where, where can we buy? I mean, what, what, what do we speculate that Jesus' ideal response would have been to that? But it's funny, in verse 7, Philip doesn't answer the question where. I don't know if you've never seen this, but he, he doesn't answer the question where. He immediately goes to money which ultimately reveals what this test for Philip is all about. Be careful this isn't us. Because when God asks you to do something, 
is our first thought is, how much is that going to cost me? Because God always asks us to do things that, is, that involves sacrifice. Did Jesus sacrifice in order to be faithful to the Father? Did, did Jesus sacrifice in order to give you the crown of life? It will always, it will always, David said, I don't want anything that doesn't cost me something. I don't want no sacrifice that doesn't cost me something. Because then it's not an offering. It's not, a, it's not worship from his perspective. So Philip answers him, not with where. He says, 200 denarii would not be enough money or enough bread for each of them to get a little. So I got interested in this for just a moment. And I was like, oh, 200 denarii. Okay, well, we know that denarii is a day's wage right? It's a silver coin, right? And so um, I, I'm going, okay, so what, what does this look like? So I, I looked at the, the, the first quarter numbers of 2019 and looked what the average income of, a, of, of an American for the first, based on the first quarter numbers, Chad, you're going to love these numbers. I know you. So like, so it was $47,060, right? Annual wage based on first quarter 2019 numbers. And so if you're thinking about 200 denarii, the Jews work six days, we like the five-day, maybe even the four-day work week. But six days, just like the Bible said, they work six days. And we know that based on this text because 200 denarii, when you average that out, has to be a six-day work week because later on it's talked about eight months' wages. So we know that it's a six-day work week. And in that time frame, what, what in our modern-day money, what Philip was saying here is that would require $31,373.50 so that everybody could get a little tiny bit. Now, of bread. Now, does that give you any indication of the amount of people he's looking at? Eight months' wages. $31,373.50. That's what he says it's going to take to give everybody a tiny piece of bread. And later on this passage, you know what it says? Everybody ate to their full. I mean, they were like, I'm done. Right? When it came to fish and the bread, they were like, I'm packed. I'm done right? Because that's our generous, glorious, lavish God. When he gives, he gives abundantly because that's who he is. That's just, that's not an agenda for him. That's who he is. And so he gives in these generous ways. And can you imagine the guy's faces? Because here's the other point that I want to bring up because our time is short. Um, and, and I'll read through the text because it, it makes this point so incredibly clear. And, and I don't want to miss this. When Jesus asked Philip where they could buy a great quantity of bread, Philip started assessing the probable cost. Jesus wanted to teach him that financial resources are not the most important ones. That maybe that's not the criteria or the measuring stick of whether this is going to get done. Did you hear that? Like, that's big. Like, why, why do we think that, it, that, that if, if, if we don't have enough money, then, God, you can't do this? Man, the rent's due, and, you know, it's not in the bank account. You know, why, do, you know what the statement we're making about who this God we serve is when we, we make those statements and when we think that way? Instantly, Jesus asked him where. Heaven was the answer, right? The bread of life has come down. I'm right here. That was the answer. Right? Jesus never expected him to get it right, but he tested him. And the test revealed what was going on in his heart. And it was money. That money was the, the great security, the great saver, the one that can solve the problems. Do we have... Man, I, I overheard a conversation. 
And, and it's not the first time I've heard this. Man, if I won the lottery, I'd help a ton of people, man. I would, I would give a lot of people. What are you doing with what you got now? I mean, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um, so, so here's the thing. You know, those who are faithful and little will be faithful in much. And, and don't you think that's a part of the test? That God wants us to see that one, that finances are not the most prized possession that he is. And that it's not the resources that we should base our decisions on. Man, so many people will come to me like, oh, I got this opportunity for this job. It's a big, big pay increase. I'm like, please never let money be the deciding factor. The will of God is so much greater than that. And he can multiply the fishes and the loaves. He can multiply, as he talks about in Malachi 3, look, if we, if we, if we are generous with God, for God, man, he can multiply. To, he can cause the trees not to cast their fruit. And so, like, we got to remember who it is that, uh, that we're talking to here. So here's a question or a statement. We can limit what God does in us by assuming what is and is not possible. Do you believe that? I believe that. I believe the scriptures clearly stand on that, that we can actually limit what God does in us by assuming what is and is not possible. I mean, we see that by how Jesus deals with folks' faith in him. Now, listen, I am not saying name it, claim it. The only reason that we can actually have faith in anything is because we're standing on his word and he's faithful to his promises and he's, and he's good in that faithfulness. So is there a seemingly impossible task? We can get real personal now. Is there a seemingly impossible task that you believe God wants you to do? Don't let your estimate of what can or can't be done keep you from taking on the task that God's asked you to do in radical obedience. God can do the miraculous. Trust him to provide the resources. Here's the example. So Luke chapter 5, Jesus and, and uh, I mean, Peter and, and, and his whole team, there's three of them uh, apart from, you know, it's, it's Jesus. I'm sorry, it's Peter, um, Andrew, James, and John. And Peter specific, I mean, Jesus specifically looks at Peter and says, after a whole night of fishing, they caught absolutely nothing. Now, remember, this is their source of income, right? They caught nothing, and they're, they're washing their nets, they're tired, they want to go home. Jesus uses Peter's boat as a platform or podium, and he preaches the message. We don't even know which one it was. And then he says to Peter, in the midst of the whole crowd, he says, go out to deep waters. Does that sound like a test? Yeah. Go out to deep waters and let down your nets for a catch. Now, Peter starts to say, um, well, we fished all night and caught nothing. This is, his, this is what Peter says. But then the next words are huge. He said, but because you said so, Lord, well, he says master here. The Lord comes a little later. Because you said so, we will go. And it says, when they had done so. So it's not just the declaration of obedience. It's the act of obedience. It's the practice of obedience. It's the faithfulness that God puts in us by his spirit in order to walk out his word. So when it says, when they had done so, what happened? Both boats so full of fish that they begin to sink. Sink. Right? This is the pinnacle day of the fishermen. And yet, now Peter's in the boat full of fish, who, by the way, Jesus is in the boat with. And he says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Why? Because if anybody knows that that was a miracle, Peter did. 
And so what ushered in the miraculous moment is because you said so, because your word has power and authority and can tear down strongholds, can accomplish anything. Because you said so, Lord, I'm going to contradict my own wants and desires here. I'm going to sacrifice my schedule. I mean, I'm tired. I want to go home, go to bed. But because you said so, Lord, I will go. And when they had done so. Now, listen, I want to say this. The, the, The greatest blessing in that whole experience in Luke 5 was not two boats full of fish. Not even by a long shot. You know what the greatest blessing in that moment was? Peter no longer called this guy in his boat. Master, he called him Lord. Jesus had revealed himself through an act of obedience in belief that his word is worth dying for or living for or following. And that's exactly what happened. And so it says here in Mark 6, 38, and he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, and I'm going to make a final point on this. Um, it, and if you don't have that, you kind of think, well, why is Andrew, how, how is Andrew aware that there's a boy with a lunch? You know, like where, where, this seems to come out of the blue. But Jesus had told them to go out and look and see. Well, it says one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, by the way, he's the bringer. He's always the bringer. Um, said to him, there is a boy who has, excuse me, here, who has five barley loaves and two fish. By the way, when I research that, that is, that is, that is the lunch of a poor person. Like that's what it's like, that's what it's deemed as. Um, so it is, it is a meager lunch. It is a, it's a simple lunch, but it's a sacrificed lunch. But what are they for so many? Andrew says. And he said, bring them here to me. Jesus said, have the people sit down in groups on the grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, Mark says. Now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, besides women and children, Matthew says. So here's, here's what I want to wrap up with. Um, guys, do you think anybody else in that crowd had lunch? Do you think anybody else in that crowd had food? I mean, these are men with their families, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're going to wander off into a desolate place and not... Uh, speculation, but I believe that there was plenty of people that had food. But you know, when they looked at their food, they said... What good could this do? Well, you know, or or, or worse than that, man, I I, I got to hold on to mine. I might not have enough. I got to I got to keep what I've got. But a boy that was probably revealed his lunch to to Andrew was willing to bring that to to the Lord and say, here you can have what I have. You can hear you can have what I have. Guys, here's the deal. And here's the, here's the lesson in this. It's huge. So often we come up to a wonderful opportunity, a test, a wonderful opportunity that God gives us to do a miraculous experience in our life and, and let us walk away with a basket full of loaves and overflow in our lives. And what we do is we go, this is mine. I, 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 or we say, Or we say, what good could this do? What impact could I have? I mean, I'm just... Write the list. And the enemy starts to tell us what we're not. And God wants to remind us who he is and what he does and how if we give him our little, our very little, 
that he can do glorious and great things and multiply that and make it something that might be profound in the heavens later in our lives. And we'd have no idea. Maybe we would. But when at the end of the day, two things happens. One, Jesus said, let nothing be left over. Go and pick, because he's all about the lost things, right? So he, he sends them out and says, Take, bring it all back in. And it's interesting. Every one of the disciples had a basket now that was full of fragments. I think that's a correlation to the, full, the boat full of fish, just as a testimony. Because what happens is every, all the people go, oh my gosh, this is the prophet. This is the guy. It attests to him. But rather than say, worship, serve, they want to make him king for their own selfish. And we'll get into that in the, in the, days, in the days ahead. And, uh, and that's, that's, the, that's just the, that's the sad reality of our sinful condition. But it doesn't have to be the reality of the vibrant believer that trusts God that he can do anything because he's glorious in these things. And that doesn't take into account what we have and say that, God, you can't. But says, God, you can because you've called me to do it and know that he can and will. Um, so, you know, that's the challenge for this passage for me. I, I love that every single person in this, in this context was satisfied because that's what Jesus does is he satisfies a hungry soul and he meets our needs to, to the full expression of his love and grace. And, uh, and man, he, he demonstrates that. Uh, and it's a glorious work that God does in our life. So I hope you come away from today going, look, um, whatever God's put in my hands, if, if asked of, it's yours, Lord. It's theirs. Lord, I, I believe that you can multiply, you can do glorious things. I'm never going to look at my, my, my context and believe when you ask me to do something bigger than me and bigger than what I have or don't have, I'm just going to believe that you can do something glorious and, uh, and I'm going to trust you for it because I know who you are and I know how big and glorious and able you are. And willing, and, and who gets blessed? I mean, who was the, who was the conduit in this in this experience? Jesus said, "You feed them," and then they did, as as a as a channel and a conduit of Him. Won't you endeavor to be His instrument? Won't you endeavor to be His channel of grace, love, provision? I mean, are there people in your life that have needs? Are there people in your context that are in need? I think that's an obvious answer. And does, does God want to be a provider in those needs? I don't know. But let's not limit that potential by saying, I don't have enough time. May, you know, it's not me because I'm... I, I, let's ask God, would you use me, Lord, in order to be a channel? Let's get our eyes off of what we have and remember of who he is. And uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these glorious signs that po- point us to how wonderful and glorious you are. And uh, show us, reveal your son and all of his wonder and attributes. Help us to, to want you for the glorious relationship, the reward that is just knowing you and serving you, knowing that, uh, that you are faithful to be this great physician and this good shepherd and this faithful provider. Thank you that you know us, Lord. You know everything about us. And we can come to you and ask for things that you're already aware of, not surprised by our circumstances, in fact, already provided, already prepared, as Jesus said. He already knew what he would do. You already know what you're going to do or want to do in our lives before we even bring it to you, Lord. 
Thank you that you are so glorious in these expressions. Help us to be faithful to entrust to you our hands, our hearts, and everything in them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.